The following is a production of the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, be sure to visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts. This is Serious Serious Fun. Welcome to another episode of Serious Fun. Uh, sorry for the delay since the last one. It's been pretty busy, but I do have a special one for you this time. Um, so this episode's going to be a little bit different. This is actually a recording of an event I was very fortunate to be a part of. Um, just uh, back on the 27th of February, I was asked to do uh, or be part of a sort of post-film conversation for the film Black Klansman. Uh, this, of course, happened just after Black Klansman won the Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar, Spike Lee's first Oscar. I sat down alongside UWGB history professor Vince Lowry, and we talked about uh, and, and sort of facilitated this longer ranging conversation about this film and also just sort of what it says about uh, race relations in America, um, analyzing it from that sort of media criticism film perspective, putting it in its historical context, and really sort of unpacking what it teaches us and what kind of instruction it offers for living in our contemporary society. Society, as well as the parallels that you can draw. So um, just as a side note, the audio on this is not great. I recorded this with a portable audio recorder, had to kind of boost the levels in post. Um, so it's not quite perfect. It's pretty good, though, considering we didn't really have a great uh, recording opportunity or great setup for it. So uh, I just want to like, uh, make you aware of that. Uh, but uh, that's enough talk out of me. If you, um, oh, and also, if you have not seen the film Black Klansman, A, do that immediately, and B, um, it will ruin large parts of that film for you. So I encourage you to go watch that movie first and then come back here for this discussion. Um, it's Vince Lowry and myself uh, leading a very spirited conversation about the film Black Klansman on Serious Fun. Uh, so just quick show of hands, how many of that was your first time seeing the film? Okay, wow, okay, so that was exciting. So uh, uh, we got a lot to talk about, as you can imagine. Uh, this is a very heavy film in a lot of ways, uh, and I think obviously a very timely and relevant one. Um, so what we're going to do is I think both Dr. Lowry and myself have some, uh, some, some kind of opening statements we're going to keep relatively brief, Then the idea would be that we're going to facilitate a conversation, so if the mood strikes you, there's something you want to talk about or bring up or ask, um, we're going to kind of share the mic. I think that's the idea, right, Maya? That's what we're doing? Yeah. Okay, Maya says yes, so that's what we're doing. Yeah, okay. So uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and start, if that's all right. Um, so uh, I'm going to be taking kind of the more media criticism side of this because that's really more my background. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name is Dr. Brian Carr. I am an uh, associate professor in the Communication Information Science Department. I teach classes in mass media. Um, game studies, sports communication. I'm also the advisor for the Black Student Union. I see a lot of the BSU students. Hey, stand up, be recognized. Uh, these, these folks are doing amazing things. Yeah, right now. <laughs> as your advisor, I'm saying stand up. Yes. Um, they're doing great things here on campus, and I'm really proud to be their advisor. So um, 
So I'm going to be taking, again, the kind of the media criticism side of things. And uh, I, I, I love this film. I'm just going to be upfront about it. This is honestly one of my favorite movies from last year. Um, and part of it is the fact that I think, because um, there's a really legitimate conversation about this, and hopefully we can maybe get into it a little bit tonight. Um, uh, the, how many are familiar with Boots Riley, the director of Sorry to Bother You? Have you ever seen Sorry to Bother You? Highly mm -hmm. recommended if you haven't seen it. It's a really good companion piece to this movie, I think. Um, but he actually criticized Spike Lee, saying that the film, in a lot of ways, fabricates history. Um, it kind of glamorizes Ron Stallworth, a guy who, as we see in the film and you know, in, the, in uh, his own memoir, talks about how he essentially was undercover spying on Stokely Carmichael, um, a lot of black activists, and that kind of thing. You know, he talks about COINTELPRO, that kind of thing. Um, and, and there's kind of a back and forth. I guess they're pretty much cool now. Uh, uh, Boots Riley won an uh, Independent Spirit Award. He actually said that you know, he really admires Spike Lee and that they've kind of had a chance to talk about it. Um, and, and I think there's a legitimate criticism to have about, or discussion to have about the film kind of holding up uh, the police structure as sort of the salvation of, uh, of, this, of this story. But I, I think it's also kind of unfair because my, my kind of read of the film is that it's a misdirect. Um, Lee kind of suckers you into this sort of false sense of complacency by making this sort of fun kind of 70s buddy cop movie. It's frequently funny, outright hilarious at points. Um, you know, we were laughing, we were having a good time. Uh, and like, I saw this movie in, uh, in theaters uh, the weekend it opened, and uh, it was one of the most incredible experiences I've had because you know, everybody's laughing, every great time. You have the great moment where Stallworth calls up David Duke. The whole jig is up at that point. Um, he explains everything, and he hangs up. It's this really cathartic, great moment. Um, and then silence as it hits the last couple of minutes of the film, and we really see what Lee is trying to get at that there isn't in Hollywood ending. You can't have a neat, tidy ending to the problem of racism, to the problem of bigotry. And to, prepend, to pre, uh, pretend that it's gone away or that it's a relic of the past, you saw David Duke in that footage, right? Um, it's still around. This guy is still a prominent figure uh, in that particular um, community. He's still noteworthy. He endorsed Donald Trump for president. Um, this is something that still goes on, and I think that's Lee's point, is that he's commenting on film and popular culture as in kind of its power to erase history and erase the past and make us think, well, our problems are solved now. And he's basically saying, no, no, they're not. And, you know, there's nothing subtle about it. I'm not saying he's a subtle filmmaker. He's not. Um, but I don't think it's the kind of thing that really invites subtlety. So that's kind of my opening statement. I'm going to pass it over to Vince uh, in, and, and uh, see what your thoughts are. Sure. So how's everybody? Okay, I'm gonna assume, I'm gonna assume that worked. Um, so my name is Vince Lowry. I teach in the history program. I'm also the interim director of the GPS program uh, here on campus. And when I watched the film, the the thing that struck me right out of the gates in that that first uh, that first scene. Um, so I don't know if anybody picked up. Anybody noticed what the film was that you saw that very brief clip of? Anybody catch this? Like very the sort of scene. Anybody know what film that was? It was gone with the wind, right? There are all of these references throughout the film to to the lost cause, right? These sort of these these um, essential, pivotal moments in American culture and specifically American film history, right? We have uh, the birth of a nation is screened later on in the film, right? So, 1915, the, as uh, Harry Belafonte's character says, you know, this was, this was what was what we would today call a blockbuster, right? You know, millions of people saw the film. It was, um, 
obscenely racist film, right, coming first from the mind of Thomas Dixon um, and then from D.W. Griffith and then taken to even further lengths and sanitized by uh, David O. Selznick's adaptation of Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, right? So, so we have uh, Spike Lee really engaging an American culture in these, um, these iconic films that are at their core um, perpetuating ideas about race, perpetuating a, perpetuating a racist structure. And, and part of the power of Gone with the Wind was the fact that it sanitized all of that, as, you, as you're saying, and, and, and really managed to, in its own way, misdirect people. But um, as Brian and I were going back and forth, the thing that struck me, um, and, and you get this actually in that opening weird kind of uh, series of takes uh, featuring Alec Baldwin, who, by the way, no accident, Alec Baldwin mm -hmm. is um, the character there, obviously plucked out. And actually, one of the questions you sent us, it was like, why is Alec Baldwin, the guy who impersonates Donald Trump on Saturday Night Live, playing this role? Mm -hmm. um, but the thing that struck me about that, and it's just a few minutes, right? But to, to, it sets the tone for the film. And if you really track the language and then try to date the language in American political and cultural history. You know, that's a film that's supposed to be, you know, we're supposed to imagine it being uh, made in the 1950s, right? This is a citizen's council, arch segregationist uh, film designed to mobilize white supremacists, not just across the South, but across the country against Brown v. Board. But the language that uh, Alec Baldwin's character uses there is from all periods in American history, particularly you notice the reference to super predators, right? That is intentional, right? This is, he's drawing, you know, Spike Lee and his writing team, they're drawing language out, right? And, pl and plugging it in. And for me, um, as much as it is, or it looks like a period piece, right? It looks like, kind of feels like the 1970s. And Spike Lee was asked about this once news of the ending got out. He was asked, you know, well, you know what do you think about that? And he said, well, it's not a period piece. And in a lot of ways, in very disturbing ways, this is a timeless film. What the film shows is that woven into the American fabric are those ideas. You know, when you think about the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s, when the Klan is reborn, that is a national mainstream organization. So for David Duke to be this national figure again, it's simply you know, returning to a period in which the Klan was a prominent and powerful political and social organization in the 1920s, right? And it was able to do that because it was seizing upon ideas, again, woven into the fabric, um, hatred not just of African Americans, but of Jews, um, also uh, Catholics, a wide, a wide range of groups that, a, that the Klan targeted to spread its national message, right? I mean, the film's set in Colorado. Right? The Klan was, in the 1920s, a national organization. It was actually more popular outside of the South in the 1920s than it was inside the South. I just want to yeah. add to yeah. that a little bit. The biggest population of Klansmen was in Indiana. Yeah. Yeah, and in fact, it's, so it starts in Atlanta, but by the mid-1920s, <laughs> Indianapolis is actually the head, the, basically operating as the headquarters of, of the Klan, and, and the Klansmen are controlling politics in Indiana. Um, and so in a lot of ways, for me, watching the film, you close your eyes if you're not 
if you know if I'm not watching what's going on in the scene and seeing a film very clearly set in the 1970s, what I was hearing, and, and I tried to do this a little bit more this time, uh, watching it this time, what I was hearing were ideas that echo throughout American history, were ideas that, that are persistent, again, so deeply ingrained, so deeply woven, and, and as Brian said, sort of people try to convince themselves, you know, and, and you know, whites try to convince themselves that, oh, these ideas are gone, right? These ideas are past. No, they're not, right? And, and that's where that last scene comes crashing, that last sort of montage comes crashing down on our heads as an audience. Um, and, and, you know, and, and I'll say too, that was the, when I saw the film the first time, that was the first time I saw the footage of the car. And, and you, 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 it's one of those things you just, you don't know how to respond to, right? You don't know how to, don't know how to process. Um, and I think that, and, and to Claudia's point exactly, right? This is a film that's meant to be talked about, right? This is a film that's not meant to just sort of watch. Um, and I was trying to think too, and I'll, I'll stop talking because I, I want to give you guys a chance to comment. I was trying to sort of put this in, in sort of a chronology of Spike Lee's films, mm -hmm. right? And so, so I'm thinking in my head, right? And so we've got, we've got Malcolm X, we've got this film, we've got Do the Right Thing, and there, there are others along the way. But a lot of the same messages, a lot of the same points um, carrying through. And here, I think he most forcefully of all of his films says, look, this is not a one-time thing. This is not a past thing. This is not a present thing. This is an always mm -hmm. thing. Um, and I just want to uh, add to that really quick. Of course, uh, we're, we're having this conversation. Uh, Os the Oscars were on Sunday. Uh, Black Klansman did win an Oscar. Uh, Spike Lee's first Oscar. Um, it was a really kind of exciting, cathartic moment, almost immediately sullied by, well, by what won Best Picture? Um, Green Book. Okay. Um, and it was funny because there was this parallel, and you talk about the idea of echoing and kind of like trying to fit this film in kind of the broader history of Lee's work. Um, and he mentioned this, uh, Twitter was on top of it because of course they were. Um, but he also mentioned it himself saying, basically, I lost to the same movie back when I made Do the Right Thing. They made Driving Miss Daisy, and now they made the Green Book, and I've lost to them both. He's like, basically, anytime somebody drives somebody, I lose. Um, and it was a really funny line. And he, he, by his own admission, was like six glasses of champagne in, so I think he was really just, um, just, just kind of cutting loose. And there's also the comment, like, basically, all they did was, he said that all they did was change who was in the driver's yeah. seat, and that was... Uh, um, but again, it is this kind of echo. In a lot of ways, we're still having these conversations, and we're also kind of seeing, like, what is the mainstream kind of discourse tolerable of? Like, what are they accepting of? And something that's kind of, um, this film is, by its definition, like you said, it's, it's meant to be talked about, it's meant mm -hmm. to be provocative, um, and something like Green Book or Driving Miss Daisy is, by definition, not. Mm -hmm. um, it is, says, okay, racism is a long time ago, we fixed it, you're off mm -hmm. the hook, white people, um, don't worry about it, we're cool now. And <laughs> Spike Lee's like, no, that's not the case. Um, so I don't know if you had yeah. anything else you wanted to add. To no, that. no, and and I would, I mean, I would say too. You know, there are a lot of controversies even swirling around Green Book, and mm -hmm. you know, sort of Don Shirley's family has said this is basically a bunch of you know, full of lies. Um, no one even approached us. We weren't talked to. If we had, we would have had a very different, mm -hmm. very different message. But yeah, I mean, and and again, do the right thing. That film was meant to be provocative. That film was meant to spark a conversation. And and Black Klansman sort of comes crashing down on our head, saying, "Hey." Remember that film that I made that I hoped was going to get people talking? Well, unfortunately, not only did it not get people talking, look where we are now. Yeah. Maybe this will actually spark a conversation. And he said, when he was asked about sort of the timing of the film, he said, look, there's an urgency here. Mm -hmm. 
this conversation has to happen. People have to take action. Something has to be done um, because we, you know, we're hurtling in a direction that sort of pop culture is saying it doesn't exist. Well, here's the footage. Here's me slamming you in the mm -hmm. face with this footage saying, yes, it does exist. Yeah. And, 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 it's, and it's only going to get worse. Um, so we certainly talk all night about this if you let us, but I'd like to kind of turn the mic over. So if anybody has any thoughts or questions, um, I'm actually going to kind of bring the mic over to you. So uh, just go ahead and raise your hand if the mood strikes you. Yeah, Claudia. So speaking of uh, you know the way that the film ends with this footage of real life documentary really footage, it. It struck me, how many of you have seen the film Malcolm X? Excellent film, it came out about 27 years ago, but what I thought, it really struck me that you know Malcolm X ends also with this footage of real people saying, I am Malcolm X, and it really is a message of hope. Whereas this one, I just thought it was such an interesting turn of you know, Spike Lee waking us up, like, hey, the movie's over, and here's the message about what's real. And now it is much, I mean, it's a very different message about what we need to pay attention to and understand about, you know, this, this doesn't end with that hopeful message of like, oh look, this, we're celebrating Malcolm X's legacy because here we are now 27 years after he made that film and we're talking about the same things. Mm -hmm. I think Spike's tired. I think that comes across a lot mm -hmm. in this film. He's a very, He's very tired. It's been 30 years he's been doing this and not much has changed. Um, yeah, I think that's a really good point. And again, like to your, to your thought, like it really does kind of, so I actually have not seen Malcolm X. So if you want to speak to that, I think it'd be really uh, instructive. I, I haven't seen it in a while. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, other, other thoughts, other questions? Um, so, when Spike Lee received the Academy Award, um, his speech was considered the most political of the night. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had mentioned basically rallying the troops for 2020 in this um, upcoming presidential election. And I had recently just come across a video of, is it Harry, Harry Belafonte, yeah. Um, and it was, he was sitting down, I believe it was a, a black Baptist church, and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were sitting in this interview, and Harry had mentioned something along the lines of whether or not the Democratic Party was even worth being salvaged, and um, kind of going along the lines of during that period of time, jumping to now, and he's still, Harry is still very much so as political activist as he was then, um, supporting Bernie Sanders. Spike Lee also came out supporting Bernie Sanders. Um, he didn't say anything at the Oscars, but looking more towards the future, um, specifically within television and film, um, how, I guess, coming from, I, I think, our perspective from communication and mass mm -hmm. media, how much do you think politics and the political climate is going to contribute and has contributed um, to the the need slash drive to create produce these films, um, and is it one driving the other um, more than more so or less? Right. 
That's a really great question. And uh, the, the short answer is it's going to contribute a lot. Um, I, I think that assuming that media is apolitical is automatically a mistake. Um, you see a lot of people like, well, I don't want politics in my comics. I want politics in my movies. I want politics in my games. It's like, too bad. We live in a political world, okay? And we use media, and historically have always used media. We've used art. We've used creative media um, to comment on the world around us, right? And right now, it's a world that there's a lot to comment on. And I, I think you're absolutely right when we talk about um, this kind of thing. You really do have to take into account that this is a period wherein uh, marginalized groups in particular, there's a lot to be concerned about. There's a lot to be afraid of. And Lee absolutely speaks to that in this film. Um, and and I, I think that certainly in his work, that's always been a strain. Even when he makes kind of a more traditional, like straightforward action movie, there's use, or like, or kind of a you know movie that's not uh, aggressively or intentionally political. There are still elements of that in there, right? Because that is his interest. And I think that you know we have um, generations of filmmakers and media creators who are not afraid to alienate an audience uh, for the sake of you know uh, to, for the sake of their art. Um, you know, because the fear is like we can't get too political because it's going to hurt the box office. Not as many people are going to buy this, right? But I think you are seeing more people, uh, certainly not at the sort of major corporate level, right? The major studios are not rushing to put out, uh, you know, uh, films that advocate burning down the system and, and, and starting over because guess who is the system? It's the major studios, right? Um, so, I, I, But I do think you are seeing a lot more stuff in the independent sphere, and there is a push for moving that window kind of to the point where even those major studios have to at least start taking very tepid kind of steps to address these things, right? So we are now um, in a point where we have major superhero films that are aggressively political, right? We have these multi-billion dollar productions that are trying to make a point and trying to say something, and even if it's a very kind of surface-level simple message, it's still... I would argue progress, and I don't know if that quite answers what you're uh, you're asking. Is that if you, if you, if you want to challenge me on it, because you know it, I, it's yeah, it, it's I'm not sure I'm quite answering what you're trying to say. Um, I think I think actually what you had led to was like the next point or the next question, which okay. would be, you know, are we seeing media trying to imitate, or I would say. Um, capitalize necessarily on these issues within mm -hmm. film, um, you know, such as, as you were talking about superheroes, uh -huh. um, you know, Aquaman talking about environment, mm -hmm. um, obviously Black Panther was extremely political, mm -hmm. uh, but mixed feelings within the black community uh -huh. on, you know, who the hero was in right. that film, mm -hmm. um, those types of things. Yeah, um, sure, and, and, and I, I, yeah, I really appreciate that, that question as well, um, because I, I think that, yeah, because there is a market for it, right? I mean, you talk about Black Panther. Black Panther made a lot of money, right? Over a billion dollars. And what's the first thing that happens once Hollywood kind of gets an idea? So Crazy Rich Asians, Black Panther comes out like, oh, well, there's money to be made in telling stories that are not the white experience, right? Um, and there's money to be made in telling stories that have a sort of political or social kind of perspective to them that are not just kind of straight down the middle crowd pleasers, right? Um, but you can add those dimensions and you're not necessarily going to scare people away. Um, I, I think if you look at like the, uh, the films that were nominated for Best Picture this year, 
most of them had some kind of political or social argument they were trying to make, some more effectively than others. Um, you know, certainly Roma had a lot to say about uh, the sort of experience of, you know, uh, being a, uh, a service worker and kind of uh, being uh, yeah, the whole, like, especially the Latina experience and that kind of thing. It's on my list. I haven't actually seen it yet. So I just want to be clear. I, I can't speak too much to that. Um, you know, Black Panther certainly had a lot to say, even if sometimes there was room to debate whether its message was really getting across the way it was supposed to. Um, you know, all of these films tried to say something. And I think that's progress in, in a meaningful way, right? And so I think you are going to see, because we have always drawn, art has always drawn from the world around us, I think you absolutely will start to see more films, more media, essentially trying to imitate life. Does that answer your question? Okay, cool. If I can make Selena happy, I'm good. I just, I just want to actually, because you mentioned Roma, that it's set up, um, I think the role that streaming services are going to play going forward is really fascinating, right? So we mm -hmm. think about uh, the amount of money that Netflix has to play with and the projects that they're green lighting, Roma being an example of that. We think about Hulu, we think about Amazon. Um, although we could talk about sort of what might be driving Amazon's political uh, productions and, and certainly what some some people might think might be driving some of their political productions but I I think it's interesting to 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 think about what streaming what kind of space streaming services might be providing uh, for filmmakers um, to you know what used to be sort of the independent film right the small cinema the art house cinema film is now streaming to millions of people and so it, it, there there's a lot of potential there of course they're trying to make money too, right? They're going to look to um, to capitalize on money and co-op messages for that purpose. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I'm intrigued to see over the next couple of years, um, real, not even next couple of years, it's 2019, right. um, but the next you know, year plus, how the, what role the streaming services play, in part too, because their turnaround time's a lot faster mm -hmm. and, and their, their production um, speed is just mind-blowing compared to studios and so they're really able to turn out content um, that I, I think will perhaps help us answer your question. Did you want to jump yeah, just oh, real quick. Yeah, 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 and, sure. and considering how data-driven so much of the streaming model is, like Netflix is all about data, it's all about algorithms, they're gonna really prioritize films that speak to, um, you know, they've got a lot of user data and, and sort of like, you know, if you like this, you'll probably watch this and that kind of thing. So if you see people kind of having a, an appetite for that sort of stuff, they are very much going to be driven toward that. But I think you also mentioned a really good point, the idea of co-option, mm -hmm. right? There's a point where advocating for social change, advocating for social justice, becomes less about a genuine desire to do it, but more about trying to cash in on a trend, right? And that is something you always have to be at least cognizant of. And like if, from a critical media perspective, um, you know, where do we draw that line? Mm -hmm. And it's not always an easy answer. So um, it's certainly a lot to think about in that regard. Yeah. Uh, we have a question in the back. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll run it up there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so watching this film evokes um, Du Bois's like double con mm -hmm. consciousness, yeah. um, and I'll have you explain that. But it's just one of those where I'm like, okay, I'm watching him, and he mm -hmm. might he might be too black for to be a police too black to be a police officer, maybe too blue to be you know. Um, within like his black community, but then he's a black guy playing a white guy. You know, so it's like a double-double consciousness of that theory. But you can just explain to the students what that is and what that means and maybe how it's portrayed in the film. Because I thought sure. that was really interesting. Sure. I'm like, that's what came to me. 
That is sort of old you school, right? Back you get a question. <laughs> you get a question. Um, yeah, so, so Du Bois, W.B. Du Bois, I was, when that, you know, for me that was such a great moment in the film, right? This, and, it, and I think it shows Spike Lee working and his writing team working on lots of different levels, trying to do lots of different things with the film. You know, uh, W.B. Du Bois, who's one of the founders of the NAACP, um, writes about the double consciousness. It's uh, in the first essay in The Souls of Black Folk, um, this you know, pivotal text on um, the early 20th century, and Du Bois is one of the great American intellectuals, um, a, an essential figure in the early civil rights movement. And one of the things that, one of the ideas that he really engaged in that text that comes out here is this idea of the double consciousness, the idea that for African Americans, um, they're at once American and of African descent. And that Americanness denies that Africanness, right? And so, and cast it in a particular light. And um, he deals with the concept in a couple of different ways. There are actually several different definitions within the text. We get, we get one of them here. But much of that essay centers on the psychological consequence of that two-ness and, and the warring of identities in, in the minds of um, African Americans in uh, Jim Crow America. And Du Bois documents his own experiences. He docu documents the experiences that he had interacting with African Americans, uh, first in Nashville when he attended Fisk University, and then uh, he spent his summers teaching in rural schools, and then later went on uh, to teach uh, at Atlanta University. Um, and, and so he's writing based upon these experiences. And, and, and so Lee's trying to engage how, here's this idea that, Du Bois posits in you know, 1902, in the midst of, of you know, sort of the, the construction of the Jim Crow Oedipus. Um, and and, and here's, uh, him, here's Lee and his writing team saying, again, as we've been talking about, this remains an issue. You know, when people use, you know, when, the, when the term American is thrown around, and for me, this is, this is you know, watch political discourse. Right, when people throw around the term American, um, the language is loaded. Right? The language is intentional. Um, you know, you've heard the, the, the term dog whistle. Well, the term American itself carries a dog whistle, right? That it's, it's designed as a signifier for different audiences. Um, one of the things that I do think is interesting about the film is that it then turns that same concept on Adam Driver. Mm -hmm. right? So, so the, um, the, the Jewish cop who, well, I'm not really Jewish, though. So. And, and sort of how he's forced to engage this identity and, and, and the same with this concept of passing, right? And how, how the film engages driver's ability to pass um, and what that means for him and then to be thrust into this environment where he faces a world that he didn't have to confront as he grew up, that, he, that, that wasn't a part of his life in the same way that it was a part of Ron Stallworth's life, the way that it was a part of Patrice's life. And so I, I, I appreciated how the film worked to actually broaden that concept and force, as Ron Stallworth does there in the conversation in the records room, you know, you're a part of this too, whether you know it or not. Right? Whether, you, whether you want to be a part of it or not, you are. You're a part of this. Other, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, first and foremost, Shameless Flood BSC is watching The Hate You Give and Rory BDB from 5 to 6 o'clock tomorrow. But my question, um, 
as you see, like uh, within the movie, Ron uh, is criticized by Patricia. She constantly calls him pig for his line of work and everything like that. I just wanted to like hear you guys' thoughts on how, although that's still an ideal today in mm -hmm. terms of a lot of black activists looking down upon black officers as sellouts and house slaves, how that ideal has turned with technology, with our media, and how that's changed, or either stayed the same, or just how that's evolved also. You, you, you go first. Okay. Yeah. No, and, and I think um, in, a, in a lot of ways, what we get uh, on display here is, is Ron's uh, naivete, mm -hmm. right? Ron's convinced, right? Ron has sold himself the lie. I can fix the system from the inside. Um, and you know, there's this, there's the scene where they bust the landers, mm -hmm. right? And 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 you know, we're laughing at it, and everybody's laughing. And it's like, of course, you're thinking in your head, that would never happen, right? It is, it is a, you know, there are a lot of absurd moments in the film. That is one of the most absurd moments in the film because you're watching it and thinking there is no possible way anything like this would ever ever happen. Um, and I see that scene sort of almost mocking the assumption on the part of, of people like Ron Sower who thinks, oh, that's okay, I can change the system from the inside. Um, when in fact, you know, Patrice makes the point, and I think the film is really making the point, no, the system itself is rotten to the core. Um, it's not something that's easily uprooted, it's not something that's easily, uh, so easily uh, taken out. And I mean, and that is precisely the message of the Black Panther Party mm -hmm. and the Black Power Movement more broadly speaking, is that the civil rights movement never engaged deeply rooted structural inequalities and discrimination and racism in the United States. And, and yet here's Ron, no, it's okay. I, I can make this thing work. I can figure this thing out from the inside. Everybody will listen to me. And, and so, yeah, and I, and I think that um, Spike Lee's trying to, to engage that. Um, I guess it would be an interesting sort of your, your 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 question raises an interesting point. Maybe at some point somebody has an observation on this of of um, how we're supposed to view Ron over the course of the film and how we're supposed to evaluate him compared to say somebody like Patrice. You know, what kind of um, where do we rank characters in terms of you know heroes or good guys in the film, right? Um, so I'll turn it over to Brian yeah. though. He might, he'll, I'm sure Brian will have a much better answer. Oh, than I, I, just I just want to kind of build on that. And, and I, I, so I started off talking about I think the film's a misdirect for the point that, the point that Lee's really trying to make. Um, and, and the point is really kind of baked into the ending. You'll notice they don't end up together, okay? Patrice and Ron do not end up together. It would have been so easy to do that, right? Especially because um, this is one of the many things they kind of fabricated for the film is this whole relationship. Ron talks, uh, Stallworth talks in the book about uh, dating the woman who eventually become his wife, that's not her, okay? Um, Patrice is a character that was created for this film. And so it would have been really easy to kind of, again, have that happy Hollywood ending where it's like, oh, well, you're a cop, but it's okay. I'll go along with it. No, she is not the kind of person that's going to compromise those beliefs, and nor should she be, right? Again, we see Ron's naivete there thinking, well, I'm the black guy that saved your life. She's like, yeah, thanks. That's great. I'm glad you did. But you're still a cop. And I still see you as, and this I think, um, we don't, a lot of times in the, in the discourse around this film, how the film handles that sort of intersectional idea of um, blackness and womanhood and uh, feminism um, doesn't really get talked about enough, but Patrice is really honestly the secret star of this movie. Um, and, and I think is really the kind of foundation on which a lot of that story is built. It's Ron's story, 
but she's really the one that knows what's going on, okay? Um, and, and I think that kind of builds into that. And so, um, you know, and I think that's kind of Lee kind of getting back to your question a little bit, saying like, yeah, we can acknowledge when, the poli- when a black officer does something well or advocates for the community or kind of tries to fight for change from within, but again, the system itself, he argues uh, through Patrice, so I think is really kind of um, his mouthpiece in the film in a lot of ways. Um, th- you can't fix what's broken, right? You have to start over. You can't do it from. It's like you know, if the house is burning down around you, you can't just be like trying to like you know get your little spray gun and just go, right? You have to you have to start. You have to like take a more aggressive approach to solve that. So I does that kind of cool? Okay, we had a bunch of hands. So I think so. I, I, I think you had your hand up before. I'll, I'll get to you next. Okay. We'll get to everybody eventually. <laughs> Thank you. Um, as I was watching it, I think I I was probably slightly naive. So when we get to the end and they show the footage of all the white supremacists, that was a moment where I was like, wow. Because I was amazed at the amount of people who openly were marching um, in support of those beliefs. <laughs> And then I started to think to myself, like, how many of those individuals are out in public? You know, they're teachers, they're crossing guards, they're... So I think I kind of, I mean, I kind of agree, like, the system is truly broken, and the question is now, how do we fix it? Um, and I, I kind of, like, I know you're talking about the movie kind of supporting um, the hope that things are progressing and getting better, but I question if they truly are. That Spike Lee is making another film, you know, 27 years later. Right. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, and certainly this film is not making that argument that things are getting better. If, if anything, it's saying that things are bad and they were bad and they're going to continue to be bad until they acknowledge why they're bad. Right. Um, you know, it, we can certainly say, like I said, I think you know, if you look sort of the broad arc of the film industry, you see a lot of movies trying to say, you know, hey, we all just kind of get along and kind of do this kind of stuff. That's like, that's kind of stuff uh, Fairly was up there on stage saying when Green Book won. Um, and, uh, and, and so it's like, oh, if we just talk to each other, things will be better. No, that's, I mean, okay, great, that's part of it. But, it, and, and Lee basically says, you know, as long as we have the system where, like you said, um, we have people who are just allowed to kind of go, like in the film, and this actually does come from the book, they had two Ku Klux Klan members working at NORAD. Okay, NORAD deals with things like nuclear missiles. Yeah. They deal with things like you know real high top level national security stuff, and that's just two of them, right? We have no idea how many are deeply rooted within uh, uh, the the government, within law enforcement, within all these things. And so, because like you said, you wouldn't know, right? Um, because you know. It, it's, the film has got some criticism for kind of portraying the, the clan as sort of these bumbling oafs because it kind of like, like makes you take them less seriously. But again, Lee does that for a reason, right? He's trying to say, this is how we see them in the media, but the reality is they're organized, they are, understand public relations, they understand how this stuff works, and that makes it even scarier because, again, you don't know where they are, right? And they could be enacting policy, they could be enacting change. I mean, we have, you know... We had, uh, you know, we've had people in the government who were members of the KKK, right? And n- uh, not that long ago, okay? Uh, and you know, uh, uh, Byrd, for example, in his, in his younger days, was a member of the KKK. He renounced it, but still, you know, he was, he was open about it. Many others haven't been, okay? Um, 
so yeah, I, I certainly think those, this film is not saying that it's getting better. You know, you, you hope that maybe we're starting to like wake up and realize it, but again, like you said, 20-something years later, he's making this movie again. And what ha- it's the same kind of outcome in a lot of ways. So I really, that's a really good point. And, and just to quickly pick up, I mean, the, the, there's the quick reference to the, the two Klansmen who are working at NORAD. This is a major problem today, right? Neo-Nazi groups are recruiting in the United States military. Mm-hmm. They're recruiting highly trained, heavily armed you know, white men to join their cause. This is, you know, this, and, and when I saw that, you know, um, uh, you know, Adam Driver, you know, asked, "Oh, are those guys military? You guys military trained? This is a major issue, mm-hmm. right? This is this is an issue that the military itself has become concerned about, sort of as a consequence of, of studies um, that nonprofit groups have done. And in fact, one of the things that was striking in the aftermath of of Charlottesville, you know, social media pictures are grabbed, investigations are done, and you start to find out who some of these people are, um, and and it really speaks it speaks precisely to your point." And I think the film does a very good job of, of capturing what David Duke was trying to do through the Klan and what the Klan was also trying to do through the 20, in the 20s, to cast itself as this respectable mainstream organization, no more hoods, no more robes, you know, put on suits, change the language again, employ dog whistles to mobilize you know, like-minded, like-minded folk. But we really do, I mean, it's the same kind of thing. You see Richard Spencer kicking around in mm-hmm. different places, right? And then sort of, you know, he, you know, he tries to cast himself as this intellectual, right? And it's sort of this sophisticated yeah. individual. Um, and, and, and it's the same kind of thing. It's trying to cast a particular image, and the reality is far darker. And in this way, I see the film really as an alarm bell, as a fire bell mm-hmm. going off. Um, trying to get our attention to, to make us realize that the clock is ticking. Yeah, I knew you were kind of tracking that. I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm trying to keep up with you right there. So I apologize if you haven't gotten to right away, but we'll give it everybody a chance. I know we started talking about it, but I wanted to bring up how um, systematical oppression is parallel to police brutality right now. Mm-hmm. But if, if like anybody knows who to add, because obviously it happens in the movie, he was undercover cop mm-hmm. and he got tackled by two white officers, and he was stopping a lady from blowing up his house. And like stuff like that happens every single day. Um, not that to make people feel bad. Vince, you have some thoughts on this? Yeah, and, and again, I think I think that this is where, for me, you know, I, I started off my comments by saying that the film um, sort of has this '70s feel to it, but it tries to emphasize the persistence. Of, of the problems that it's trying to expose, the timelessness of the problems that it's trying to expose. And, and I think you're spot on. That scene where he's uh, assaulted by two fellow officers, right, really, I think, conveys um, precisely this point, right? Here is, yes, you're, you're kind of in the moment thinking, okay, it's the 1970s, you're seeing the vehicles, right? You're thinking period piece, but in that moment, you're snapped out of it again, right? You're, you're, you're realizing, wait, is this the 70s? Is this 2019, right? You're, you have this kind of moment and it, it occurs, I think, throughout the film. There's another one that kind of, you know, Lee does this, I think. There's a moment where David Duke is narrating. He's like, oh, I wish, you know, I wish that in, and we can talk all day about Topher Grace as the casting decision. I love Incredible it. Incredible decision. It's, it's hilarious. Um, 
But there's this moment where he's saying, oh, I want somebody in the halls of Congress to praise Western civilization, and he goes on and on. He's talking about Iowa Representative Steve King. They're almost verbatim quotes that David Duke is, you know, Grace's character is spelling out there. And again, I think you, you have throughout the film these scenes that are designed to shake us and make us question, wait, am I watching something set in the 1970s? Or am I watching something that's set in, in 2019 or 2018 when the film yeah. when the film what came I'm out? No, no, no. I'm I'm agree with you. I'm saying that I think that I think that's sort of the film's it's it's his misdirect Spike Lee's misdirect is he wants you to kind of get in the mindset of this as a period piece, but then we have he intentionally puts these scenes in to say no, this is still going on. This is, you know, nothing has, you know, patterns have not changed. Mm -hmm. Society has not changed. The structure hasn't changed. The system hasn't changed. No, I think you're spot on in identifying that scene as one of the best examples of Lee doing that. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, do we have some other questions? Okay, yeah, you had your hand up and we'll get to them. So, uh, I think we'll come back this, <laughs> and this is a question for both of you, but I, maybe I'll start with Vince here. Yeah. That whole scene of, um, when they're in the conference hall, the hotel, mm -hmm. and you have that old, older black gentleman mm -hmm. speaking to Beatrice and her characters and the whole, uh, the story about Jesse Washington, was that like a, another piece of the movie that was kind of added in there, or was it actually like, were they trying to portray something real? Like, was that a friend of Jesse Washington's, or? So the uh, case of Jesse Washington is in fact very real. Yes. Yes. Um, Harry Belafonte, I believe that the character he plays is fabricated. Mm -hmm. that, um, that was Harry Belafonte. That was yes. Harry Belafonte, yeah. Um, but uh, the story he's talking about is very, very real. I believe the photographs are even real. Yeah, and so, um, and the thing that struck me as I watched the film is, is not just uh, Belafonte telling the story and the being surrounded by the images, but then the cuts between that and the Klansman watching Birth of a Nation. And he's spot on. The Birth of a Nation um, inflames whites. It fuels the, the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan. It sparks racial violence. And one of the things that's striking about the photos is that after all those photos were taken and circulated, uh, Waco city leaders attempted to basically hide them all, destroy them all, because the NAACP got a hold of them and used Jesse Washington's lynching as a centerpiece of their campaign for anti-lynching laws. In Waco, it, it, uh, they wanted a, na a federal law because they knew there was there had never been a prosecution of whites perpetrating poor whites perpetrating a lynching. And so they wanted to make it a, a national, establish a national law that would give the federal government jurisdiction in, in lynchings. And so, they just do that? Uh, no, there's, there, um, somebody, was it, uh, a couple of different, I think the, among the presidential hopefuls have been calling attention to this. The Senate years ago passed a resolution apologizing for its failure to pass such legislation um, in the 1920s and then again in the 1930s. And the vote is something like 98 to 0 to 2. The two, the two senators who refused to cast a vote for it, um, and all this was was a res resolution saying, we apologize for mm -hmm. not acting, were the two senators from the state of Mississippi. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so, um, again, right, there's sort of this persistence, but that scene to me, right, and, and it's the mirror, right, because Belafonte is telling this story of witnessing the lynching from, from above, and there's John David Washington, Ron Stallworth, mm -hmm. watching yep. a cinematic, watching the Klansmen in, in a frenzy watching a cinematic lynching. Um, and that was that was part of the power and potency of D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation was that it, it provided whites all over the country with this opportunity to experience this. And they then acted upon that in a wide range of ways. Yeah, um, so that's, that scene in general, um, there's a lot to talk about. Um, so uh, when I was in my undergrad in my, uh, my, my broadcasting degree, we also wrote film, we were broadcast and cinematic arts. And... So we actually watched Birth of a Nation um, because it was seen as a historically significant film. I hate that movie so much, okay? To, um, it's, it's an incredibly, I mean, uh, it's I'm just, I mean, apart from the, the racism and the absolute rewriting of history, it's also just an incredibly tedious film. Um, this is the kind of movie you already, if you want to like it, you, if, you, if you're going to like it, you pretty much already have to agree with it. And so I, I would argue that, honestly, um, you know, even from a film studies perspective, I think we should maybe reevaluate including this film um, in a lot of film studies courses, because uh, whatever historical significance it has is offset by the fact that it was essentially used as a clan recruitment tool. Um, and so I, uh, yeah, it's... Maybe that's well, th that is well, it is part of the historical significance. But um, as they do correctly point out, this was a blockbuster film. It was one of the first films that was kind of this traveling attraction, and so it would go from town to town, and people they would sell out the theaters, and uh, they very quick. Uh, um, uh, he said Wilson, right? Was the yeah. president? Yeah. yeah. Woodrow Wilson basically said this was history written in light. That was all one hundred percent true. Um, and Stallworth actually does talk about that in his book. Like he writes this kind of like he goes off on this like page long tangent about Birth of a Nation that they basically sort of wove into that monologue that Belafonte gives. But there's the uh, and so what's important about that is that the same sort of cross cutting technique you see in this film was used in that movie, and that was intentional. That was one hundred percent intentional um, to kind of like illustrate it. And so it's again Lee commenting on film itself and film's role in these issues. But the other thing I think is fascinating, I didn't catch it so much until this viewing, is the scene, and it's one of the only times I think this film really truly breaks the fourth wall, is that point where we're cutting back and forth and there's this, that static shot of um, Harry Belafonte's character and the BSU students holding the lynching photos and staring at the audience. And I hadn't really noticed it. I've seen like, it's the th third time I've seen this movie. This is the first time it really jumped out to me. This is, again, kind of Lee saying, you need to face this. You need to be aware of the history behind this film, um, behind this organization, and look at the human cost of this. Um, it is essentially saying, do not look away from what we're showing you. Um, and, and I think that there's so much to, like, this is why when, uh, this should have won best editing. I'm sorry. Like, the, the editing in this film, um, so, so much about this movie got robbed, but the editing in particular, there was masterful in that scene. Um, if you had any... I was just got that that the way that that scene is is cut, the way that it, that it's edited, is so powerful. I mean, yeah. why there there are a handful of scenes that stick with you, but that one is. I mean, I sort of mm -hmm. think of you know Lee's films, and mm -hmm. I mean that's one of the the more compelling scenes yeah. in, a, in a in a Spike Lee um, 
film. And, and yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're spot on with your assessment of, of, of Birth of a Nation and its, and its power in that mm -hmm. time. Because what it did, it took a lot of ideas that white Southerners had been propagating. The way that they had revised history and it put it on a scale that nobody had ever seen before. Mm -hmm. That that no one had ever, you know, no one had ever even thought to muster. I mean, D.W. Griffith is this cutting edge director for his day. Mm -hmm. And he mustered all of his cinematic ability in the service of the lost cause narrative yeah. that uh, that um, basically whitewashed the history of the South, the history of slavery, the Civil War, and created this reunion on the basis of white supremacy. Um, and 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 it just kind of aside, uh, if you want to be really disturbed, go take a look at Amazon and look at the reviews for The Birth of a Nation. Oh no. They, they are, as you might imagine, watching Klansmen yeah. um, erupt oh, uh, in celebration. Although I will say there is apparently somebody a few years ago, and I haven't seen it, re, like basically re-edited it, uh -huh. designed to sort of turn yeah. the whole film on its head. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Um, and, and one other thing, because I, I know you got a question, yeah. I'm going to get to you in one second. Um, but uh, the other thing this film does, and, and so it's easy to look at like, oh, Birth of the Nation is a long time ago. Um, this film directly calls out Gone with the Wind. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad it does. Um, it's, talking it's about awful. movies, I cannot stand. It's Gone with the Wind. Um, and so, like, there's two movies I think recently have done a great job just calling out this movie. Um, this is one, uh, Django Unchained is the other, which literally directly calls out Gone with the Wind in some of its shots and, like, ends with a plantation exploding. It's great. Um, uh, but, what's, but what's important is that, you know, the Gone with the Wind myth is still a powerful mm -hmm. one. People still idolize Scarlett O'Hara, right? We write sequels to this story. You still have that plantation wedding. People will go out and have weddings on plantations because they kind of want that life. And again, it's a much more sanitized, friendly version of that lost <coughs> cause narrative. But honestly, it draws from the exact yeah. same DNA as Birth of a Nation. Yeah. Um, it's just a lot more, you know, we just like to focus on, uh, you know, uh, Clark Gable. Yeah, and well, and I, you know, and just really quickly, and then we got a question right <laughs> in front. But the 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 trick that's pulled here over the course of sort of of cinematic history and also of literary history is that the edges are softened. Yeah, but the message is still the same. Yeah, the messages are softened. I mean, Thomas Dixon is this rabid racist um, it, who has you know there are all kinds of questions about his mental stability um, even very early on in his life, um, but. Over time, the message, the edges of his message are softened, but they don't. The message itself does not change, and it gains new power as it's introduced to new media. And you know, only Disney can hide Song of the South, mm -hmm. right? You know, everybody, everybody else is still watching Gone with the Wind, right? Um, you know, at least uh, you know TNT and T or TBS used to show it, I think, annually yeah. at least. Yeah, um, and so it's still out there, and. And, and people still are willing to believe what they see. Whites are still believe, willing to be able, willing to believe what they see on the screen. So. All right, so. Um, I think mine was less of a question, more of a statement. Mm -hmm. um, there was the part where Ron was discussing with his fellow officers, um, basically just saying, well, you know what goes on, why don't you say anything? Mm -hmm. And Steve was Buscemi's, that, that was his brother. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Michael. That makes okay. Yeah. That a lot of stuff just started making sense. Yeah. I had I to. Thought, I thought that was him, but it's not. I had to pause it on Amazon to see who would pop yeah. up. And, 
<laughs> but basically he said, well, you know, we're a family, we stick together right or wrong. And that really stood out to me because that applies to a lot of things. Um, I guess personally in my experience to the black community, um, with a lot of the things that are going on, namely the trial of R. Kelly, mm -hmm. how the black community treats everything in that same vein. We stick together right or wrong, mm -hmm. even though we may acknowledge that certain aspects of our community are wrong, mm -hmm. we still stick together. And that kind of pointed, that was just like very impactful to me because it's like there's a lot of similarities of, between like, you know, different places. So like the black community, the police force, the KKK, like we all kind of root ourselves in this value of brotherhood, not necessarily sisterhood, but brotherhood mm -hmm. and sticking together regardless. And it's just kind of like, maybe we shouldn't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. That's all I wanted to say. That's a really interesting, and I hadn't considered that, but you know, and Ron specifically says, you know, I, I wouldn't want to puncture the blue coat or curtain of silence, mm -hmm. right? Um, but yeah, it, it, is, it does kind of talk a little bit about the whole notion of the in-group and the out-group. Like if you're part of a group, you know, uh, you have to protect that group and you can't challenge it. And like, as Vince said, that's what makes that scene where they bust the racist cop so completely unbelievable. The idea that they would all get, go along with that. Um, and, and again, I, I think it's all in the service of what Lee's trying to do. He's trying to just, I think he increasingly makes the story more absurd, more artificial to kind of like build you up like, oh man, okay, this is a good time. Like just waiting for Ain't No Mountain High enough to start playing, it's great. <laughs> um, and then, oh, right, that's right, um, racism, it, it exists. And uh, it, it doesn't just get solved that easily, right? Um, and uh, I, I love that whole montage of him walking through to ELO's Lucky Man and just kind of like, it's just, just a perfect song choice and the way that um, John David Washington is kind of like, as him walk, he's kind of like, I, I've, I've fixed it, I've solved the problem. And then no, um, yeah, yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. No. Okay. Um, I think one of the more impactful moments for me um, was the portrayal of the Black Panthers in general. Mm -hmm. um, I'm still waiting for a Black Panthers film that portrays them as the heroes they are mm -hmm. and not as. Uh, you know, uh, violent criminals in which they are left out of our history books a lot of times um, as being. Um, I know I didn't know much about them until I got to college and started looking into them myself. Um, but the, I think one of the most telling moments for me was when the police captain had said um, that he agreed, what is it, is it, I wanna say it's Hoover. Is it is Hoover, Hoover? yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, with Quintel Pro, um, you don't want to just please look it up, it's really important. Um, but setting the priorities of the U.S. government, how Ron Stallworth had talked with this FBI agent and he had revealed these are very powerful individuals that you've had discovered. Um, thank you for giving us this information, uh, but we never had this conversation. Um, we don't want, essentially, AKA, you know, essentially saying we don't want the American people to know that um, the KKK is, has is infiltrating the U.S. government because that would create distrust. Mm -hmm. um, why would people want to trust us? Why would they want to trust the police if we, if they know this is happening? Which is, I think, one of the reasons why they wanted, why the captain at the end then told Ron to get rid of all of this evidence mm -hmm. that's ever happening in the first place. And I think a lot of times that happens with our history, um, and we don't find these things out until years later. 
Um, and so I was watching this video and it was children talking with uh, Panthers, former Panthers. Mm -hmm. And it's really good uh, video and it highlighted a lot of the misconceptions that many of them might have had or just didn't know um, about the Panthers. And uh, I was reading one of the comments on YouTube and it had said that it's interesting that the KKK still exists but the Black Panthers don't. Mm -hmm. Because to me, that's extremely telling of who they thought the real terrorists were. Right. Um, the violence that was committed by the KKK and still is committed by the KKK far precedes that of anything the Panthers have ever done, that a, a lot of the policies that um, we have today are in part thanks due to the Panthers, such as um, you know children going to school and being given uh, breakfast, free breakfast provided, so a lot of those social programs. And a lot of that credit is never given to them. And so I, I would, I'm would i still waiting for that film in which they're portrayed mm -hmm. in that way. I've seen documentaries, I've seen those mm -hmm. things, but I think that it needs to be in the mainstream um, and that misconception needs to be dispelled. Yeah. I don't know which one of us is gonna fall over each other I'll, to try I'll and jump real quick. Yeah. I'm surprised Spike Lee hasn't made that movie. Yeah. That's actually a I kind of a shock. I think the Hampton one yeah. where it's his yeah. life story. I, that's, I, 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 that's actually coming out. Is it, that's been that's been that's been green lit. I saw is, that. Is I'm gonna. It a documentary no, or it's a it it's a film. It's film. yeah. So it's a feature film. I saw yeah. I think on IMDb the other day, or maybe maybe it was one of the historians I follow on Twitter. So this is a really interesting question. I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of point to Victor right now because in History 207 Introduction to African American History, Victor asked me a question one day um, about precisely this issue. Right? How is it that you know, the Black Panthers are targeted in the way that they are, yet white supremacist terrorists go virtually unchecked in the same era. Not and just that, but the fact that the U.S. government was complicit. Oh, yeah. Oh, for not sure. not really wanting to, and by not doing anything, yeah. aided in them succeeding. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. persevering. And, and I think a week after Victor asked me that question, um, there was a high-ranking Justice Department official before um, a congressional committee and, and talking about this report that was produced. And the report went on at length about the dangers posed by the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm. And a congressman said, oh, okay, or um, a congresswoman, it might have been Maxine Waters, and basically said, so where is the section in your report on white supremacist organizations that the Southern Poverty Law Center has documented. And there was a lot of hemming and hawing and sort of looking around at you know, subordinates like, hey, do you, you know. And then he sort of said, well, we don't have any. Which, which is glaring, right? It's, it, is, it is very clear. I mean, you look at the Southern Poverty Law Center, you, you look at the reports on white supremacist organizations bent upon terrorism and it's it you know the government's aware that these organizations exist and yet you see virtually no action taken to suppress them right the clip even there at the end in Trump Tower right well there were good people and bad people on both sides right this sort of this defense of precisely this kind of the kind of organization that, that you're describing and um, Cointel, you know, Cointel Pro very clearly um, set out to not just undermine but demonize the, the Black Panther Party, and 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 there's sort of you know historians don't like to play the counterfactual game, the sort of what if game, but there is the sort of the point of what what would have happened had 
you know, the FBI not committed so much in the way of resources to sabotaging the, the Black Panther Party when you talk about the programs that you identify there and the, the transformative nature of those programs in the communities in which the Panthers were working and using basically, um, you know, using this program of infiltration, which Ron is himself mm -hmm. a, a part of, um, to, to undercut the organization. And so, I, I, and I, I think in invoking Hoover's line, the greatest domestic threat in America today, um, that's again a moment where Spike Lee's saying, hang on a second, right? Let me, let me show you the real mm -hmm. threat. Let me show you the threat that went unchecked and therefore was allowed to thrive in that way. Yeah, and it's worth noting just uh, real quick uh, that this film was done uh, for a while. Uh, Lee specifically held on to it for about a year to coincide with the one-year anniversary of Charlottesville and the death of Heather Heyer. Um, and so, again, this is all part and parcel of the larger point he's trying to make. Um, Annette, I think you had a question, and we'll uh, get to Victor. Um, yes, I have a comment about um, some of your comment about the Black Panthers having a movie. I think that when it do focus, like when you, when you do feature length films like that, a lot of important stuff gets cut out, so like possibly a series, mm -hmm. like a TV show series that goes into one each show would be better, in my opinion. But um, I why not both? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, put as much media out there. But, um, I'm gonna find this while you get where you're yeah. going. Yeah. <laughs> um, He's going I, to Google. <laughs> right. um, but she driving Miss Daisy is not the name of the movie. That's yeah. so much yeah. like Green Book. I've never seen that, and I just wanted to know because I recently saw Green Book not so long ago. Um, how it's telling the story of like um, making racism and the state of our society more stomachable for white America today and how they're both similar in that sense just because I that movie came up for my time and I just want to see oh, the similarities nice. and how um, the Oscars making that the film of the year mm -hmm. um, kind of speaks to our political climate back then in the 80s of it mm -hmm. yeah, yeah and then now 89 like, yep. yeah, okay. yeah, yeah that's gonna do the right thing yeah, yeah. Um. So the, the, the kind of the comment on Green Book and sort of the, 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 the knock on it and the comparisons to Driving Miss Daisy is essentially that the narrative of both these films is you have someone who is racist and then comes into contact with one of the good ones, so to speak, right? And by so doing, they're like, oh, well, maybe they're not so bad after all. This person's my friend. Uh, there's actually, uh, if you know Seth Meyers, the comedian, yes, he and his, uh, um, I, I, I'm, her, the, her, his writer, I'm drawing a blank, she's super funny, but I cannot remember her name for the life of me. Amber. Amber, that's right, Amber. So they put a video together called White as a, Savior, a White Savior, the trailer. So and honestly, anything I could say, that movie says better about, or that, that, that like five minute right. clip says better about that. So um, I highly encourage you to check that out. And then Vince, if you want to kind of add on anything to that. No, you got me now filing that in my Rolodex thing. I'll, I'll email it to you. I will say, so I was Googling, uh, Ryan Coogler is producing a film on the life and death of Fred Hampton. So I, I didn't imagine that. It is actually coming. And yeah. it just in the last few days has been, has been greenlit. It's always so. a nice feeling to know that you actually remembered something instead of imagining it. That, that's, I, I live for that a, feeling nowadays. Yeah, yeah. but, but I, I mean, I do think, you know, I, I saw this. It was a perfect tweet that the guy that made Dumb and Dumber, Mm -hmm. And there's something about Mary has an Oscar. Mm -hmm. 
and yeah, and then there was this laundry list of, of filmmakers, so much better, so much more talented, that do not. And, and you know, Green Book, a lot like Driving Miss Daisy, is this sort of pat on the back yeah. film, right, as you, as you said. Um, and it's also... That wasn't your tweet, was it? No. <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't say anything, because I was just going to be like, I don't, you can't, like, tweet a prolonged sigh. Um, I think I oh I, I did do the eye roll emoji. Yeah. That one I did do. That was that was the one I put out. I, I, I was I wasn't watching the Oscars, but I was following Brian on oh, Twitter. Yeah. So that was my that was my update. As it's we about went. the same. Did you, did you see me uh, lose my mind over Spider Man? That yeah. was pretty great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, just one other, oh, yeah, sorry, absolutely. one more quick yeah, thing, um, and, and sorry. <laughs> uh, I, I do think it's important to note that um, part of the reason that movie won uh, is the way that the best picture uh, ballot is cast. It's preferential voting, so basically they kind of just like average out each of the votes. Mm -hmm. So the upshot of all of it is that enough people had Green Book toward the top or middle of their bracket that all the other movies kind of split the vote, and Green Book's like, well, it's the least objectionable film. And that's basically what it is. And in broadcasting, there's this, there's this term, least objectionable programming. It's not good, right? It doesn't have anything interesting to say or add anything. But, you know, if you turn it on, most people won't leave the room. And that's kind of, it's this, it's, and, and when you apply that to real discussions about race relations and that kind of thing, you get warmed over, just kind of feel good, like you said, pat on the back stuff, like Green Book winning. Oh, yeah. I just want to speak on Selena's comment. Um, and I also have a question as well. Because we do live in a carceral system, and so much of that system is purposely designed to support uh, white nationalists, mm -hmm. uh, white people. Um, and when you look at the Black Panther Party, the party was essentially obliterated from the face of the earth. You look at how Fred Hampton died, murdered in sleep, um, shot. 21, 21 years old. 21 years old. Um, I don't know how many times he was shot, but. And the Cook County Jail didn't even admit it till, I don't even know, 20 plus years later that it was an actual assassination and not just. Exactly. So you have black people, black political act activists being, you know, obliterated, hunted, and killed. And the agents, police officers, are being supported by this carceral system, by the American prison, um, prison complex. And so there was one moment in the film where he's uh, the black cops is talking to the um, is, is talking to the president of the BSU chapter, um, and he's you know talking about uh, he wants to change from the inside. And we're here saying that oh well you can't change from the inside. I guess my question to you is if you can't change from the inside, then how do we attack those institutions? Because. Right now, the institutions have the power. They have that, you know, they have the American prison complex on their side. Um, you know, I just finished reading this book. It's called uh, Slavery, Slavery by Another Name mm -hmm. by Douglas Blackman. Mm -hmm. um, it basically suggests that, you know, and it's true, slavery has transitioned. It hasn't gone anywhere. It's transitioned um, into what we have now. Um, and so I guess that's my question to you is, you know, how do we attack those institutions if it's not the way that he's suggesting? Because what we have now, you look at the Black Matter, the Black Lives Matter movement. You know that. You know every time they have a protest, how many people are arrested? Um, how many lives are destroyed? And, and so you say, well, you know, have, have these marches, have these protests, mm -hmm. but how can they be successful if all this power is on is on the other side? Unfortunately, I don't think I'm going to muster an adequate an adequate answer. Um, 
because it really is, I mean, we kind of, we think back to um, the civil rights movement, right? And we think back to, um, you know, King, Martin Luther King Jr. right before he's assassinated, you want to talk about kind of like state level acts. I mean, you know, the FBI was basically trying to convince King to either leave the civil rights movement or commit suicide, right? I mean, it's kind of, this is stated fact, um, documented fact. Um, but there's this, this moment, the night before King's assassinated, you know, he talks about sort of the, the future of the movement, almost kind of, you know, seemingly anticipating his, his impending assassination. And there is this, this moment in the speech in which he very clearly signals the end of this struggle is not near. The, 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 you know, he says, you know, I may not get there with you. I mean, it's a, this sort of ringing, haunting moment in his speech. And in that, there's, there's this, I think, a concession of what is a multi-generational struggle. Right? And um, King understood, I think, in ways we don't fully give him credit for, precisely what he was up against, right? Precisely what he was, he was battling. I mean, that's what, at the core, the Poor People's Campaign was trying to do, and, and aligned in a lot of ways with some of the initiatives that Selena described that the Black Panther Party was engaged in. Um, and not to put, and I'm, this is where I'm going to start to get to the answer, um, not to put too much weight on the 2018 midterms, but there's some fascinating re results in there. There's some, there some inspiring results in there. And some of the campaigns that were run, the messages that were delivered, the messages that were victorious. And um, that's not to say that um, you know, 2018 changes the political landscape. Um, I, I, it would be naive of me to think that 2018, the, the midterms somehow changed the political landscape. Um, but they cert some of those elections um, certainly, I think, have given, have given people pause um, to think about the power of the ballot and the significance of efforts to disfranchise whole swaths of people and why it's important that people push back against that. It was announced today John Lewis and a group of congressmen are going to strike back they're going to propose legislation. They're going to introduce legislation in the House of Representatives to strike back at efforts uh, at disfranchisement campaigns to, to restore the right to vote to its proper standing. And, and I, I, I think it's no accident that they're doing that on the heels of the 2018 midterm. I mean, mm -hmm. yes, regaining control of the House helps that effort, but it's not just regaining control of the house, it's seeing at the local level the impact that grassroots mobilization could have on politics. And now it's about taking it to that, that and this is going to sound terribly cliche, but taking it to that next level. And I think that's really, Lewis and company introducing that legislation, they're thinking specifically about 2020 and the significance of national elections. I don't really have anything to add. I just thought that was really good. Um, Spike Lee, in a, in a press conference after he had won uh, the uh, Oscar for Best Screen Adaptation, um, he said that he wouldn't have that award unless there was the hashtag Oscars, Oscars so white. Mm -hmm. Had there not been those individuals who had pushed for the Academy to become more diverse, 
to have more reflective members um, of the society that we currently exist in. And I cannot, I don't know what, exactly how the academy works. Um, I have an idea or a concept of how it does work, but I definitely think that even in his film, I think that he drives on the point that there can be benefits of infiltration. Um, and we saw that happen, that there had, um, you know, had Ron not been in there, maybe he wouldn't have been able to stop some of those attacks. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think there's one right or wrong way to accomplish um, effective change. I think there's multiple ways that it has to be mm -hmm. combated. Um, yeah, that's what mm -hmm. I have to say. Um, yeah, and, and I think you're absolutely right. When we talk about activism and organization, like there's really no one wrong way to do it. I think that's a really, I, I just again, I, I don't have a lot to add. I just think these are both really good points. So, yeah, you had your hand up. Sorry. Um, basically, so like, although this isn't explicitly a drama as in like Shakespeare would be, um, it follows the track of the Aristotle elements, as in like tragic hero, Marcia, Peripatia, Cashby, and Arsis, and then Arsis. Um, I would say the plot is obviously the tragic hero. I think that's what I was like, wondering if you take your plot. I think you are right in that this is, in a lot of ways, a very classical film. Um, and, and you mentioned specifically the catharsis element, that, that uh, the entire last act of the movie is catharsis, right? Um, and, and that's where, you know, and, and I think in some ways it's almost Lee kind of playing with the notion of, like, I could just make a crowd-pleasing kind of movie that just like, oh, yeah, okay, hey, everybody's pals now. Look at Ron. He made all the cops. They're not racist. It's great. We're having a great laugh together. Well, that's likely what no, no, no. But I, I feel like in some ways, like, you know, it's just him kind of playing like, eh, let's, mm -hmm. you just, just you guys wait, right? Just you guys wait for the last couple, like, two minutes of this movie. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that, you know, and, and he masterfully plays with that idea, right? That it's, it's about ramping up the tension, ramping up the tension. Like, there's moments in, this, in the movie that are just incredibly, and, you know, he's really smart about when to let that tension go. Um, and so, like, you know, there's a scene where, like, uh, you have Adam Driver down in the basement and they're interrogating him. And, you know, Ron comes up and just hucks a rock through the window because he knows his buddy's probably going to die if he doesn't do something, right? And, that, and again, the, the window breaking, that's a catharsis, the, you know, kind of moment like, you know, this is, they are partners. They are looking out for each other, right? Um, and, and I think that that's absolutely, uh, and, and the, the idea of Ron being a tragic hero, we talk about his naivete, like, you know, it, it's important to know he's a good man, right? Uh, in the film, he is absolutely portrayed as a good man. He's portrayed as a righteous man, um, but he's also portrayed as a guy who is very much an idealist. He's, and so we see sort of the whole sort of poked in that. And, and, and there's almost like a, a sort of surreal kind of like dream, sort of almost like afterlife-ish element to that last shot where... And, and, I, and I love that Patrice pulls a gun at the same time he does. That's just one of my favorite parts of that scene. Um, and they're kind of like going through the hallway, and it's that, it's Spike Lee does that shot a lot where it's just like people kind of being pulled along. Um, and like there's this thing, is it really, are they really up there burning the cross? Is this just kind of meant to be a metaphor? And it's pretty clear by the time the rest of the film unspools, it is. Um, and, and what's interesting is he denies you that catharsis at the end, right? He, he basically makes you confront, like, the, the last shot of the movie is the American flag upside down, the universal sign for distress, and then it turns black and white, and that's when the movie ends. There is no happy ending. There is no easy answer. Um, and, and, and again, it's worth noting that um, Stallworth's book, again, it's interesting. It's worth checking out if you like the movie. 
they adapted this. There's a reason they won Best Picture or Best Adapted Screenplay. They had to do a lot of work to turn into that movie. Okay, this is very much a cop writing a narrative about his story based on his notes, based on and a lot of which he had to destroy. Um, so there's, you know, there's some criticism like how much this actually happened the way he said it did and all that kind of stuff. But we have enough to go on that, he, that probably more or less happened the way he said it did. But in the book, like there was no big bombing plan, there was no major threat. No, you know, uh, they were trying to do some cross burnings. The police kind of the police presence in the investigation kind of stopped that from happening. Um, they, they fabricated a lot of that for the film to kind of fit that more traditional structure. Um, but I think they did it, again, for the purpose of denying you that kind of easy closure, that the Aristotelian sort of classical ending. Oh, good. That sounded a lot more, that sounded really smart. <laughs> yeah. um, so back to the awards aspect of it. Uh -huh. um, what does giving awards to films like we both say? Um, that's the question. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, okay. So you, you're basically asking, what's the problem with the Oscars? And I'm just gonna, <laughs> we've already been here for coming up on an hour and twenty minutes, so I don't think you want me to be here for another hour. And 20 minutes. <laughs> um, I'll say basically, um, you know, the Oscars do respond to social pressure. Um, I think you you are correct when when we said he wouldn't have the Oscar because without the Oscar So White campaign. Um, you know the frustration about you know certainly Get Out losing last year was a was a big uh, frustration for a lot of people because it was legitimately a great film. Um, and I'm actually struggling to think what did win Best Picture last year. Moon, uh, uh, Shape of Water that was good too, but but Get, get Out Get Out was better. Um, uh, so yeah, it it shows, and, and I think the more instructive question is uh, not just like what wins Best Picture, but who gets nominated in which categories, right? Why wasn't Ryan Coogler nominated for Black Panther, right? If we're looking at overall director and craftsmanship, he certainly deserves a lot of credit for taking, you know, a big kind of blockbuster comic book movie and kind of like using the craft and the, the genre to sort of pay homage and tribute to African culture, but also to raise some really important questions in this sort of like hypothetical kind of science fiction atmosphere, right? Um, but historically, like it is very, very rare to have any uh, more than one non-white director, uh, or, or certainly more than one black director, because I, I don't want to erase Alfonso Cuarón, um, who was himself Mexican. Um, but uh, it, is, it is like the Academy can't handle that much change at once. And you have to understand that the people who are making the voting decisions are very old and very white. And... They like they have a sort of vision of Hollywood. So when Green Book wins the Best Picture Oscar, I think it's instructive to say that um, th there's a quote from the show Parks and Recreation that I keep coming back to, where Ron Swanson says awards are stupid, but they're less stupid if they go to the right people. And I think that's kind of the <laughs> way to look at the Oscars is that it's it's important not to get too hung up when they make when they get it wrong because you have to understand that Hollywood is still very much run by old white guys who pretend kind of social liberalism and social justice, but they're really deeply fiscally conservative and very kind of socially conservative in a lot of ways. Let me push um, you even further. Yeah. What, um, with, what does that say, or rather, what message does it send okay. when we award those types of films versus other types of films, mm -hmm. not just the Academy Awards, um, Grammys. Yeah. We see this across the plane, especially mm -hmm. with poor people of color. Yeah. Um, not getting their recognition and we're talking this is going to mean jobs for them this is mm -hmm. going to mean increase in pay and they're, they're denied yeah. those opportunities mm -hmm. right um 
across the board? What yeah. is that? What message is that setting? Is that reinforcing? Yeah, that, that I, I think it absolutely is. Deserving of mm -hmm. this recognition mm -hmm. and who isn't. And, and you're right. Like uh, it, it does. It absolutely does raise that question of who's deserving and who's not. And it does have consequences, right? Like uh, if uh, you can say, "Hey, I made an Academy Award-winning movie," all of a sudden people want to make your other movies, right? Mm -hmm. So as much as it's kind of fun to say, like, "Don't get too hung up on the Oscars," there are repercussions. There are consequences to winning an Oscar or losing an Oscar, right? Um, and, and I think it does kind of still say that the people who are the tastemakers, the ones in charge of these voting academies, these industry voting academies, are still predominantly um, thinking about things a certain way. Like, you know, you brought up the Grammys, and that's an interesting point. So we had a best album category. So I don't know anything about the Grammys, just full stop. Uh, music is none of my business. But um, <laughs> the, uh, the thing, so I, like, I got nothing against Casey Musgraves. She's fine. Um, but in a category where you had Kendrick Lamar just dropping an entire album because he saw Black Panther, he's like, I'm going to just go ahead and make an album, and it's great. And then you had uh, Janelle Monet doing this incredible science fiction epic film uh, concept album and just being, you know, Janelle Monet, which is just in and of itself, I think, deserves an award. Um, how? How do you justify that? And it is. A lot of it has to come down to, like, you know, I, I think the other question is, who do we allow to be the tastemakers, right? Um, should we maybe uh, consider, like, if we're going to take these things seriously, they're going to be taken seriously, maybe we should start opening up um, the voting and, and kind of changing the way these things work. And again, that comes back to that question, how can we change these things? Maybe it's not possible just to do it from the outside. Maybe you have to have people make a real concerted effort, put their careers on the line, put that kind of stuff, and do out, go out and do it. It shouldn't have to be that way. But... Um, oh. Has anybody seen the the two killings of Sam Cooke? I have not. It's fantastic. It's out on Netflix right now, and it's all about how Sam Cooke was actually really involved with the Black Panthers, mm -hmm. and he talks about Muhammad Ali and how. So Sam Cooke was on the verge of starting a label so that Black artists could have yeah. their own, and he was mysteriously set up in this weird conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Like you guys have to see this movie. Mm -hmm. It just came out like. Yeah. But it speaks to this whole idea yeah. about mm -hmm. these empires that are really economically driven, mm -hmm. but they're kind of under this this guise of these are wars and these are artists that we are celebrating. But really, there's um, you know there's an industrial complex that is perpetuating white supremacy. And right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and, and again, like it is just it comes down to the thing. Like it, it comes down to. Who gets? If you really want to get like critical theory, like Horkheimer Adorno argue that basically there, there's this kind of structure where you have this sort of like constant churn of media of information that's just designed to kind of keep you complacent, and you know it's usually the powerful elites that get to decide that. So who are the powerful elites historically? Who are they in terms of identity? I mean, history kind of tells you the answer, right? And so it's it's fun to kind of poke fun at the Oscars, but there are and, and you, you again you got this very well. But there are consequences, um, and so what does it say when a movie like Green Book wins the Academy Award? Nothing good. But I just realized he also, the character who played David Duke, um, also mentioned, oh, she won an Academy Award for yeah. playing that role. And mm -hmm. I, I wonder if that was like, could be fun in that. That was 100%. Oh, yeah. Okay, Absolutely. Right? There was no Absolutely. way that was accidental. Yeah. 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 Uh, Drags the Academy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just want to, I don't know, I'm not allowed to say. Like, just the whole, uh, <laughs> I don't know if the message is what to say when Marsha Ali wins for Moonlight two years before and then wins for Green Book this year mm -hmm. in terms of like um, black representation within film and how we're getting um, recognized and just like uh, 
how the Oscars sees that. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, this is such a progressive moment, or about a film starring, or should I mean, just having other actors and just talk about being black and being queer to another driving the space. Yeah. And look at Denzel's Oscar. Mm-hmm. For what was it? Training, training day. Training day. Yeah. Well, he got snubbed a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That, there was that year where he and Halle Berry both won, yep. and a lot of speculation was that it was the Academy kind of be like, yeah, we have a problem, so we're going to go ahead. Even though, you know, I, I enjoy Training Day. Is it Denzel's best work? Probably not. He, he's, he's not exactly stretching his, his limits there. Didn't he get I believe so. Yeah. yeah. And then I, I heard that they just threw him Training Day the same way he won along with Halle Berry just to like make up yeah, the Academy has a long. Um, I mean, just if you look at look at Martin Scorsese, like he won for The Departed, but is The Departed his best movie? It's it's good, but it's not Goodfellas, right? Um, he, you know, there's a long history of that, and so you know, and that's why I was kind of hoping, like maybe like Spike Lee would win one because it's like you know, they've overlooked him multiple times. It's like the fi- they said it's the fifth time he's been nominated, and he only just now won an adapted screenplay award. Um, I don't have a good answer for you on that, but it is indu- in- indicative. It's, it's again, it comes back to that sort of like, oh, we did this, we solved racism, yeah, mm-hmm. let's pat ourselves on the back, we're the academy, and we're great. So um, I, I don't know, uh, do you want to add anything? or No, that uh, that nails it. I mean, it really is, it's, well, you know, why award shows suck. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's, you, you're inevitably going in thinking, this year will be different. Yeah. Just kidding. It's yeah. this, as you said, it's the same people calling the shots, mm-hmm. um, and they're they're happy to take money, right? They're happy to take the sort of the money for tickets, right, and and pocket that. But when it comes to the time to celebrate films, um, more often than not, you have to look to sort of smaller yeah. independent spirit awards, uh, film film critic circles mm-hmm. to to get the proper recognition for films like yeah. this. And the French, but but again, it's this catch twenty two because when something that does deserve it wins, it's pretty good. Yeah, um, like I said, uh, it, it's it's no it should be no surprise if you know me how excited I was when Spider Verse won mm-hmm. Best Animated Picture because it deserved it. It was one of the best movies of last year, and it's like it was nice to see the right movie win for once. Mm-hmm. But it's there's still a fundamental problem with the concept of awards, and really, honestly, if you want to get really even kind of stepping aside from the the main reason we're here tonight. Like, how do we really quantify art and say that one form of art is better than another form of art? You know, from a, certainly from a postmodern perspective, you really can't, right? Um, so it, the whole notion of just sort of evaluating and ranking creative expression is, in fact, kind of inherently flawed. And then when you add in existing social biases and, you know, the sort of economic imperative and that kind of stuff to it, it just becomes more so. Um, I don't know if we have any other questions or... There was that one scene where Ron was in the captain's office and um, he was telling him, like, I really want to get out of the records room. Um, I'll do anything. Um, probably, am I too natural? I'll cut it off. Was that in reference to just the identity of minorities and their willingness to conform in order to be accepted by those in power? Yeah, I, I, think, I think you're absolutely right on that. Um, and it's interesting because in Solver's book, he does talk about his, his afro in particular and how you know they did not have a hat that fit him so there's like he's like awkwardly trying to put it on his head and kind of make it work um and that i think that's them kind of alluding to that a little bit that the system is not kind of designed uh for somebody who doesn't quite fit the kind of standard mold of what a police officer should be 
And so it's the same kind of offering, be like, okay, I need to get out of this room, right? You know, it's, it's, it's awful. The, the other cops come in and say all this racist stuff to me. Um, like, and of course, it's also worth knowing the first thing they offer him is narcotics, right? Like, okay, where will you fit in, the, where you like stick out the least? Narcotics. Mm -hmm. I, I, and he lets that slide. Mm -hmm. but, um, but he's also considering it because like, well, it's, it's better than what I'm doing now. Um, but yeah, I think it is this, I think you're absolutely right that there's this idea of identity erasure that kind of comes with it. Yeah. And, and I think it's important too then when he attends uh, the Kwame Torre uh, speech, right? It, the message there. And you notice, he, he starts, his whole tone, his perspective starts to change, right? He kind of, he grabs a hold of the message. And there's that, that brief moment where who he is and why he's there sort of fades into the background. And he becomes a part of the group and, and begins to see himself as part of that group, um, which again then... Um, I think speaks to and, and uh, as my brought up the double consciousness yeah. right in this point of, of, of Ron struggling against this and so I think that's that's Lee giving giving Ron the opportunity to to learn about himself and to think about himself in ways that have not been um, and the word is used at one point in a, in a, a comical way um, but not comical way the sort of the colonized yeah right the cultural colonization um, and, and I think that's that's Lee engaging. There's, there's a lot. There's so much here. We could probably go on for yeah. hours and not even begin to scratch the, the surface yeah. of the I think process. we were originally only going to do this for like an hour. And we're <laughs> <laughs> um, but are there any other questions or anything? Can I just, I was just going to, yeah. another plug yeah. for that Sam Cooke film, okay. which is that he was one of the first uh, black artists to wear his hair natural. Um, and a lot of artists then followed suit because of Sam. Um, you guys know the song, Ch A Change Is Gonna Come, mm -hmm. Sam Cooke. A million other really familiar songs, Sam Cooke. If you don't know about Sam Cooke, watch that documentary, it's amazing. Um, so anyway, um, yes, thank you so much for sticking around. This was an awesome discussion. I love talking about film. If you have other recommendations for films that you would want for us to screen and then have professors facilitate discussion, students can facilitate discussion, community members can facilitate discussion, Please send your ideas my way. Again, my name is Claudia Guzman. I'm the director of Student Life. Can we give a hand to our awesome professor, And a special thanks to the uh, offices at UWGB that put the event on, specifically our multi-ethnic student affairs office and Milo Lee, uh, as well as our Good Times programming office and our office of student life. Uh, you heard Claudia Guzman at the end there. Uh, she's wonderful. Mai's wonderful. They're all fantastic, and they're really excited about this. So um, we're, I was very grateful to be a part of it. Thanks to Vince Lowry for being a part of this, uh, really helping to contribute a lot of historical legitimacy to the conversation. And uh, thank you for listening. Uh, make sure you're also checking out uwgb.edu forward slash podcast. Of course, we are on Stitcher, so thanks to Stitcher as well. Uh, until next time, I'm Brian Carr, and this has been Serious Fun. You just listened to a Phoenix Studio production, the podcast network for the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. Thank you.
For more podcasts, visit uwgv.edu forward slash podcasts.